Let's pray. And Father, we know that's the, the place where we have to be if we're to please you. But Lord, so often, getting to that place where our heart's desire is to serve you, where we want to be pure at heart. But sometimes that's a journey and a battle we have to fight. So Lord, we pray, show us again today the way back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the topic that we're going to look at this morning, I was tempted to, to merge in with the story of our, our next judge, Jephthah. But then I had a, a bit of a rethink. Because you see, before this man, Jephthah, before he could do his work, before he could play his part in the transformation of God's people, before that, something, that which we're going to look at now this morning, had to happen in the hearts and the lives of God's people. And this is so important, I think, that we really do have to give it the attention it deserves. And this something relates to one of the most important aspects of our spiritual life. That is sin, our understanding of sin, our attitude to sin, that then so affects our experience when we sin. Because have you ever been in a maybe a state of brokenness as you found yourself sinning again and again in your life in ways that you so long to be set free from? There are things that you say, things that you think, things that you do, and you, you hate them. You do hate them. And you also hate yourself because they're a part of your life. And you've prayed maybe. You've perhaps prayed again and again and again. And you've begged God, begged him to act. You've begged him to rescue. You've begged him to set you free. But nothing's happened. And you wonder, why, Lord? Why are you letting me down? Don't you maybe care about me? Don't I matter really that much to you, as much as your word seems to say? And in your desperation, you perhaps think, if only the Lord would send someone to help me. If only he would step in himself and act and do something for me. But what again I want to say to you is that before the Lord can send someone, before he can do something for you, before that can happen, he has to first do something within you. He's got to do something in your heart, in your life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And first of all, we're going to begin by learning an important lesson. And just let me introduce this lesson I want to share with you. Let me do it by, by telling you a story about the pastor who was visiting a man who professed to be a Christian, but who drifted a long, long way in his life from Jesus. And they talked for a long while, but the pastor was getting nowhere. So then he said to the man, I want you to go outside and look up to heaven. You will receive a revelation. But it's pouring with rain, the man protested. I'll get soaked. Just do as I say, came the reply. It's very important. So the man went outside and 10 minutes later he came in absolutely dripping wet. Water running from him. And so he said to this pastor rather angrily, well I kept looking up to heaven but I didn't get any revelation. I just got drenched and I now feel an absolute idiot. 
I don't know, came back the reply. That seems like quite a revelation for the first try. <laughs> and that, you see, actually, is so true. It's so true. In that, it's when we get to the point of realising the stupidity of sin, of realising how stupid, how idiotic it actually is to rebel against God and turn from His way. It's when we get to that point that you've actually made considerable progress indeed. For you see, sin, often at its beginning and in the early stages of our life and our experience, sin often seems to us pleasurable, very pleasurable, as we indulge ourselves to excess in whatever we want, as we just do whatever we want to do, please ourselves. But then what we find is the things that once seemed a pleasure begin to take control of our lives or, or get our lives into a mess in one way or another. We see that things that we wanted to do and that we gained at one time great pleasure in doing, that these become things that we have to do. These become things that control us. Yes, and instead of then being things that, that we possess and that we use, these things instead become things that actually possess us, that control us, that are master of our lives. But you see, if we realize this, if we realize the stupidity of sin, our stupidity, then actually that's a good place to be because that can be the beginning of our lives getting back on track again, of our lives again being transformed. For after all, this was the turning point, wasn't it? For the prodigal son. Remember that story? Famous story. He began by reveling in the pleasures of sin, but soon that same sin had him groveling in the dust like an animal. And it was then, though, that he realized his stupidity. Luke 15, 17 says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving. And it was at this point that his life began to change again. However, although realizing the stupidity of our sin is a, a good beginning, in fact, it's an essential beginning if we're going to get our lives into order, yet in itself, that's not enough. It's not enough. Because I've known, and I'm sure that many of you have known as well, people who've been able to see the stupidity of their sin, but who still haven't been prepared to do anything about it. We've known people who have hated the life that they're living, but who still have seemed unwilling to pay the price to make the changes necessary to change that life. And just what that, that more that's needed is, is actually beautifully illustrated here in the life of the people of Israel. For you see, at this point in their history, they had sunk just about as low as they possibly could. They got to the very bottom, for again, as they'd done so often, having been redeemed and saved by the Lord, they've turned back again to that life of sin. And it's not just that they keep on getting back into the same state that they once were in, that they keep on going back and back. No, they're actually, they're on a downward spiral. Because each time they fall back into sin, 
they fall back into an even worse state than they were before. And they're sinking in their life ever lower and lower until at the point we find them here, they're not only in the hands of Baal, no, but every perverted religion at that time has its place in the lives of those who are supposed to be sacred and holy and set apart for God. Verse 6 says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. But you see, the Israelites now, they want to do something about it. They've reached that point. They're sick of themselves. They're sick of their sin. They're sick, and let's be honest about it, they're sick because of where it's got them and what it's led to in their lives. Because you see, because of their sin, they're again, it says in verse 8, shattered and crushed by their enemies. That's the point they've got to. They're shattered at the end of themselves. And so they, they cry out to the Lord. Verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We have sinned against you, forsaken our God and serving the Baals. And there are parallels there, aren't there? For many of us, with many of our lives, that we at different times perhaps have reached this point in life, the point where we're just sick of ourselves. We're sick of our sin. We're sick of the life we're living. We're sick of where it's got us. And we really want this time to deal with it. We want to get it right. We want to get back on track. And it's a bit like maybe the story I read about a deacon who when he was at the church prayer meeting, Every time he prayed, finished by saying, And now, Lord, please clean all the cobwebs out of our lives. Now, everybody there knew what he meant. And what he meant was clear out all the unhelpful words, all the thoughts, all the actions, the deeds that too often we let creep into our lives. Clear them out. But finally, one man decided that he'd had this prayer just once too often. So just as the deacon was building up again to this climax of his prayer, this man jumped to his feet and shouted out, Don't do it, Lord. Just kill the spider. Kill the spider. Now again, as is the case with God's people here, this is about reaching the point in our life where we, we don't just want to deal with the little things anymore that are wrong. We don't just want to deal with the symptoms anymore. We don't want to do it. No, what we want to do is we want to sort out our root problem. We want to deal with the rebellion in our heart against God that's the root of everything else that's going wrong. We want to deal with our sin. We want to kill that spider. But having reached this particular point, then the next stage in Israel's journey here with the Lord is it's one that I think most of us will find surprising. Certainly, I did. For what does the Lord do here in answer to their cry? What does he do? He turns them down flat. Verse 11, the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. 
so I will save you no longer. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. In other words, God's saying, I'm fed up saving you. I'm fed up having you back. You got yourself into this situation and now either you or the gods, this world that you're putting your trust in, they can get you out of it. Now these are hardly the kind of words, are they, would expect God to say. Hardly the kind of sentiments would expect him to express. So why does the Lord take this kind of attitude here? Especially in the light of the fact that a little bit later, just a little later, he actually does agree to rescue the people. So why at this stage here then does he reject them? Well, I believe because of the vital difference that there is between regret and repentance. You see here, at this point, at the beginning, the Israelites regret what has happened. They feel sorry, but first and foremost, they feel sorry because of what this has meant for them. They feel sorry because of what their sin has brought on them, what it's brought on their family, on their friends, on their nation. And then, almost as a kind of afterthought, they seem to feel a little sorrow, a little bit of shame at what this sin has meant to God. But later, after the Lord's rejection of their regret, this matures, this deepens. It deepens into repentance. Repentance that is about facing up to our sin for what it actually is and turning from our sin back to God. And repentance that here shows itself, as repentance always should and always will, shows itself in the deeds, in the lifestyle, in the way that the people of God go on to live. Because notice verse 15 and 16. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And then it goes on. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Now, you see, I hope that, that it, what the, the difference there is here is that actually between a human and earthly perspective on sin and a, a heavenly, a godly perspective. Because you see, the human perspective on sin is all about poor me. It's all about what this means for me. It's about what, how this affects me. That's what comes first of all. It's all about me. That's what matters most when we're at that point of regret. But the heavenly perspective, the godly perspective, thinks first about what all this means for God. The heavenly perspective remembers first, before anything else, how ugly sin is to a holy God and how much pain that God then feels as his people who he loves deliberately sin and hurt him. And you see, what this, this attitude, what this perspective actually shows is that God really is the Lord of our lives and that he actually does come first for us above all other things, that he is first. Ultimately, what this attitude shows is really whether we are spiritual Christians or whether we are simply earthly, fleshly, carnal Christians. So you see, the question that all of this poses to us 
is what is your reaction when you sin? Is it regret or is it repentance? Are you sorry for yourself? Sorry maybe because of how this has impacted on your life. Sorry even because of what it's done to other people. Or are you sorry first before these things which have got a place? But are you sorry first and above all because of what you've done to God? Because you've hurt him. Because you've offended him. Because you've put yourself out of relationship with him. Remember famously David in Psalm 51. After he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. And had her husband Uriah killed so that he could have her. And later bitterly regretted that. He said in verse 4 of that psalm. And he said this to God. Against you. You only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Now, unless you can understand why David said that, having hurt these other people as he did so badly, unless you can understand why he put God first, then you've got things to sort out in your understanding, spiritual, and in your priorities. And I tell you, all this relates back to, to what we said at the beginning. All of this has a real impact on our spiritual experience, especially our experience of sin. For I believe the reason why sometimes we sin habitually. I believe the reason why for Christians there are certain sins that the power of God just does not seem able to release us from. The reason why is because we've never really repented of these sins. We've been sorry about them, but we've never repented. And because of that, our sin has hindered, has blocked the flow of the resources and power of God into our lives. We've regretted our sin, but have we ever really repented of that sin? So how as Christians then? We, we need to learn. I give up. How we need to learn to deal with our sin regularly. We need to do that. We need to deal with it daily. We need to deal with it continually. And we need to deal with our sin properly. We need to deal with it biblically by repentance. That's a key to spiritual growth and progress. But I said to you at the beginning that this passage teaches us an important lesson. It certainly does. But it also does something else that we're going to look at briefly now. And that is, it corrects a wrong impression. And this, this wrong impression, this wrong impression is that our God, in some way, whenever we go wrong in life, that our God is a stern, unforgiving, ungiving God. That he's a God who at that point who just loves to punish, who loves to judge, who loves to put his foot on our neck, if you like. And some would seem to, to find support for that view in, in this verse, this passage here, in the way we're told in verse 7, that the Lord became angry with the Israelites. It says he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. And they'd also find it in the, the Lord's rejection that we've already just looked at of the, the Israelites' first plea for mercy. And some of this, people would see shades of, of punishment and of judgment. But what I want to say to you is that this is not punishment. It's discipline. 
That's a big difference. You see, the Lord allowed the Philistines and the Ammonites to overrun Israel, but not because he wanted to sit back and watch his people getting the just fruits of their disobedience. No, rather, here the Lord used, wanted to use the Ammonites and the Philistines as the rod of his discipline that, would, that could be used to guide his people back to him. You see, that's God's purpose. Not to punish his people, but to bring him back to them. And as for God being a God who loves to judge, who longs to, to write his people off and just you know, turn his back on them, you don't find that here. You certainly don't, because once his people truly come back to him in repentance, then you see that the Lord is quick, the Lord is eager to restore them. Verse 16 says, he could bear Israel's misery no more. And this isn't just a one-off, this is consistently true in the Bible of what it tells us about God. That terrible though our sin might be, that God is always eager to forgive, he's always willing, always eager to restore any who return to him in true, from the heart, repentance. He's ready. Because he is the God of infinite love. Because he's the God of never-ending mercy. Of unlimited forgiveness. And so I don't know, you might be here this morning. And you might have sin in your life that you know is an offense to God. And maybe that's been the case for a long time. And your life has been miserable because of it. But you see now that though at points in your life maybe you've regretted your sin, you've regretted what you've done, you've regretted the way that you've been living, yet you've never truly repented of it. And it's because of that that your Christian life has so often been powerless, that your life in general has been empty. It's because of that that so often in life you've failed, you've fallen down and felt nothing but frustration but now you see it you see it but you wonder can God forgive me for all of this can he forgive me for all my past sin and failure can God forgive me and even more than that can God use me again in the future I believe God can not because of who you are but because that's the way God is. That's the kind of God he is. So repent and turn to him. And you will find that he's ready to receive you, bless you, and use you. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, you're the one who, who knows the hearts and lives of your people. You're the one who knows the need that we have. You're the one who knows the times that we've fallen back into sin. You're the one who knows the darkness sometimes of our lives. But Lord, you're the God who knows us, but you're also the God who loves us. And Father, we thank you that you are gracious. That so often in life we're, we're not gracious. We hold grudges. We hold resentment and anger and bitterness. But Lord, that's not the way you are. Help us not to judge you by our standards. Help us to see how gloriously you're ready to forgive, ready to restore. Lord, we thank you for your great patience, for your unlimited love. Lord, help us in our need today to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.